Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on SpeechTherapyPD.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode keys to evidence-based practice for the multitasking SLP. I am your host, Mary Beth Hines. I am honored to have a co-host for this episode, fellow speech-language pathologist, Renee Garrett. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. Renee Garrett is co-host of this episode. She is a paid employee of a large health system in the Commonwealth of Virginia. She receives compensation for this presentation from speechtherapypd.com. She is the secretary of the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. Dr. Stacey Raymer receives compensation for this presentation from speechtherapypd.com. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. Our learning objectives for today are to explain the steps in a systematic review and its importance in evidence-based practice, define meta-analysis and its role in evidence-based practice, and identify three resources to access systematic reviews to guide evidence-based clinical decision-making. And now we welcome our guest today, Dr. Stacey Raber. She's the Graduate Program Director of the Master's in Speech-Language Pathology Program for the Department of Communication Disorders and Special Education at Old Dominion University. For the past 40 years, Dr. Raymer has been engaged in research to optimize rehabilitation outcomes in neurologic communication disorders, particularly those with aphasia following stroke. Her work has been supported by the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Defense. She has published more than 75 papers and given hundreds of presentations nationally and internationally. Dr. Raymer is past president of the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences and is a fellow of ASHA. Welcome, Stacy. We're so happy to have you on Keys for SLPs to discuss an important topic for the busy SLP, evidence-based practice. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we're so happy that you're here. And Renee, that's kind of fun, a little fun fact. Renee and Stacy have known each other for a long time. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Who gets to tell? Renee? <laughs> well, we, how about this way? You say it, Renee. Okay. Dr. Raymer was my... See, she did it. 
<laughs> she was my not only my professor and academic advisor, but also my graduate thesis supervisor. So she gave me the opportunity to complete a 75 plus hour research-based clinical thesis project with her. And so I was I was very grateful for that because it was a wonderful experience and definitely a learning experience. And then we have had interactions throughout my both of our careers because I've taught at Old Dominion as adjunct faculty. And then we have a love of Old Dominion Monarch football and other athletic programs and have served on the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia now together. So it's definitely been a, a full circle kind of moment, I think, for me. Right. And you've taught me a lot in the recent years. I, I rely on you because you're you're out there in the trenches and I'm in that the ivory tower and have forgotten probably more than you do every day. <laughs> so, well, if it wasn't for your research, I don't know about, about how much I would be doing. So thank you for everything that you've contributed. Well, thank you both. And it's so fun to have a professor student uh, relationship and to have you both here after so many years ago and, and so many years working together since. So let's dive in Renee, take it away. Okay, so Stacy, will you tell us about your career journey and how you merged your roles of military spouse and speech language pathologist? Well, and that was one of the reasons Renee and I had always connected a lot as well, as we have this military background. I've got tons of students at Old Dominion University who have a military connection because we're just a couple miles from the largest Navy base in the world. But the way I connected to the military was I went to graduate school at the University of Florida. I left my home state of Wisconsin and went to Florida, which was really delightful in January, and then happened to fall in love with this nice Navy officer and onward to the military we went within a couple of years. So my intention when I went into speech pathology was to be a school-based therapist. My sister is deaf. And that's when I learned about speech therapy. I had to go with her to the speech therapist in our little town in Wisconsin. And I said, I want to do that. Well, so I went to University of Florida. And then fortuitously, they were looking for a couple of people to do a practicum at the VA hospital. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And I went down and I met Dr. Chick LaPointe who at the time was at the VA in Gainesville. And he happened to be also be a Green Bay Packer fan like me. And here I, you know, I was very far from home, but he introduced me to aphasia and was my first mentor in aphasia. And I just liked it. I liked it a lot. I really got along with the gentleman. So anyhow, that kind of launched my I took a complete detour from what I intended to do in speech pathology. And then the military took us, let me see, I when I finished my master's degree, my first job was in a school and then I got married and we moved and my second job was in a school. So I have this interesting school experience in my background, but then I went straight into a PhD program at the University of Maryland. And then eventually to the University of Florida, where I finished, because the Navy moved us again. So I finished my PhD at the University of Florida. So I definitely associate more as a Gator. But you could see it took a lot of flexibility to be able to make this all happen. And it took a lot of miles of driving. 
I remember when we moved to Norfolk 27 years ago, we opted to live in Virginia Beach, which is a about 30 minute drive in traffic from campus. And everyone thought I was so far away. Well, I was used to driving an hour and a half every day with little ones. And so 30 minutes was just normal, but it took a commitment and I just liked it. I liked the people and kept going. So aphasia became my life and my career as I rolled with the Navy a couple of times. I did a postdoc at the University of Maryland Medical School. And I did another postdoc down at the University of Florida, again, because the Navy brought us back to Florida. But throughout that, I was my aphasia research career was really beginning to grow. And it wasn't until I got here and received a, there was a faculty position At Old Dominion, the stage of my husband's career was that he could very likely end up in Norfolk. I applied and they took a risk thinking that I would be gone in three years. And 27 years later, we're still here because my husband took a series of Norfolk jobs and then retired in Norfolk and still works for the Navy. So that's the only the first question, but that's the background. I mean, it took a lot, but eventually... And I've seen this happen a lot of times. It happens to be that often a woman, a spouse takes a job at a new city and you may not have the job that you hope for. And then something comes up and you end up having a career and it thrives and you get to make a contribution. It happened for me. I was very fortunate. I think that's another way we also connect is because my husband was also Navy. And so when I went back to graduate school, my dad actually had had aphasia after a stroke when I was in my mid-20s. And so interestingly enough, the month after I started my graduate program, my husband was deployed and my dad passed away. And so we always sort of had these connections through the military, but also through just being a an adult learner with children at home that we were responsible for the kids too. And then I was also a partial caregiver for my dad. So yeah, it was a very interesting time. And I remember those times, Renee, I remember you in the clinic workroom. Those were some challenging times, weren't they? Yeah, very much, but also gave me a why and a purpose and I'm still here. And you certainly both exemplify multitasking SLPs in in many ways. Well, yeah, it's really being a military spouse and your husband's gone. And regardless of whether I'm at a university or working, if I'm working this goal, regardless, we're juggling a lot when the ship's away or when our spouse is away for whatever branch of service. But tonight we're talking about evidence-based practice. So I suppose I need to kind of get us to that. I mean, how did that turn out? We sure do. We It'd be fun just to chat all night long. No, it's easy to chat. But. but we do need to get into some learning objectives, right? Stacey, what do you think are the keys to evidence-based practice? Well, and what I was going to guide us to is because I want to put in a plug for how I even got to this piece of my career, because I was really involved in special interest group two back in the zero five to zero ten. And That around 2006, ASHA really, in medicine, evidence-based practice was being discussed, oh, before 2000, but ASHA really was putting some money behind some initiatives 
to create platforms to provide evidence to practicing clinicians. Because evidence-based practice, as you all know, is it's partly what our patients want, the client preferences. It's partly our professional expertise, but all that the foundation for those is research evidence. And so ASHA was going to work on this series of systematic reviews. And I was on the front end with Leora Cherney and Janet Patterson. We actually did the first ASHA systematic review because they were launching this evidence-based practice platform. And did you say that was 2006? Well, in 2006 is when we were doing the work because the paper, our first paper came out in 2008, but we were doing the work back then. I mean, now you look at, because I'm rethinking to the practice portal and there's just so much. Well, that didn't exist in 2006. It was a vision that these folks at ASHA who have worked very hard have just done a phenomenal job bringing that to all of us. And it's just a resource that's so rich for every practicing clinician, no matter what your interest is, every area of speech pathology and audiology. But that's sort of the intro to what is evidence-based practice. Okay. So, you know, as a practitioner, I'm trying to access the research because the key to evidence-based practice is accessing research. Well, there's hundreds of studies that are done and you lose access to a professional library, right? How do you do this? So this wonderful resource that can help evidence-based practice are systematic reviews. And a systematic review is a research endeavor where a group of researchers asks a specific clinical question. Often we hear the phrase a PICO question that stands for population intervention, the comparison intervention, and then an outcome. And to answer that question, you have to scour the literature. And that's a key to a systematic review. Systematic review isn't just a literature review. I write literature reviews all the time. But a systematic review is intended to scour all of the literature that could potentially answer a specific question because some studies may have one finding and other studies may have alternative findings. And the purpose of a systematic review is to put it all together in as unbiased a way as possible to then see what's the weight of the evidence in the literature. So it's a rigorous research endeavor, if done properly, that then gives a clinician confidence that what they're reading, this paper that is summarizing some of the literature, is providing them with an unbiased view of this treatment approach, or you can do it about a diagnostic approach, whatever, a screening tool, because you can ask questions about all those things. So typically with a systematic review, how long should you expect a, a systematic review to take? If I was doing one, it takes several months because it takes a while to find the literature. And then you have to, and it depends what research question or 
key words you ask out of a search engine. You go to search engines like PubMed or sometimes Google Scholar, whatever. There's a number of search engines. But finding the literature is a is a big first step. But then often you find dozens of articles that you have to start reading. And then in a rigorous systematic review process, there's at least two people doing all the reading so that the two people independently could be reading, making decisions, extracting data, and then you can make sure that there's agreement in the decisions that are being made and the data being extracted from literature. That's a a very important step in assuring non-bias, because otherwise I could just pull out the good stuff from my papers and right no. You're encompassing the whole literature and multiple people reviewing. And that should be, I mean, if you're, what I hope when you take away tonight to think about, okay, because there's all kinds of systematic reviews now, what should I be looking for when I'm reading a systematic review to know that it's a well done systematic review? And that's one of the easy things. Do they talk about multiple readers, multiple reviewers pulling data out? And then even reporting how consistent those readers and reviewers were. Those are elements to a strong systematic review. Ultimately, there are ways to take this systematic review to pull together all the research. And one of those ways is to do a subjective overview of the research. But the other way is to do an objective combination of the research results from a number of studies, and that's called a meta-analysis. So generally, a systematic review is this large review of the literature of every article that could be found with a general descriptive, that's the right word that I want to say, a descriptive summary of all those findings. A meta-analysis takes some of those individual findings on a tool that's the same and combines them into one statistic. So in aphasia, a lot of studies look at word finding. They might use a Boston naming test. So I can use the Boston naming test results of study one, study two, study three, put them all together. And now I've got an even stronger representation of the literature and stronger evidence. If the statistic shows that it's a positive finding that the treatment that I'm providing is better than just spontaneous recovery alone or some other standard treatment. But the premise of meta-analysis is combining results when there are similar outcome measures, similar metrics. So could I have a Western aphasia battery score? Yeah, if there's a study, one study used Western aphasia battery, another one used Western aphasia battery, you can kind of combine those results and see the meta-analysis is an analysis of multiple analyses. So then who would be the person, is there typically a lead investigator that would be concerned with like inter-rater reliability and intra-rater reliability? Is that part of this? Generally, yeah. I mean... It could be done in any number of ways, but sometimes it's the lead kind of is is directing the flow of traffic and a couple of other people are involved in that piece of the puzzle and they might do the 
the reliability metrics, but it could be done any any number of ways. And often you see there's a, a number of people, number of co-authors in these review papers because you're just reading, but you could be reading dozens of papers and that takes time that in the context of all the rest that you're doing in your multitasking day, right? Trying to fit this into the calendar. Exactly. Now, how does an evidence map fit into the systematic review? Oh, yeah. Well, the way ASHA has certainly done evidence maps is they've coalesced every systematic review they could could find on all kinds of topics within speech pathology. So you can click on a topic, let's say cleft, cleft palate, and the evidence map would link the reader to studies, systematic reviews. Sometimes you'll see papers that are called practice guidelines, and that's kind of a step beyond the systematic review where they make some very strong clinical decisions. And those practice guidelines also get added to evidence maps. So the evidence map is sort of just a coalescence of all these resources, this systematic reviews, practice guidelines, and other kinds of general introductory material that clinicians, it's just full of helpful information for clinicians who are trying to stay on top of the most recent thinking. Thank you. Okay. If we're not overwhelmed already, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay. Let's talk about some resources. So one is ASHA. And can you tell us again for, for the multitasking SLP so they don't have to look it up? Like, so if you went to the ASHA website, where exactly do you go to find the systematic review? Oh, it's on the top right. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's resources for, that, I have a number of things open on my desk, but that's not one. I use it so often. That's okay. So we'll go to the, we'll go to the members section and go to resources. You don't even have to log into the member section. It's under practice management. Yeah. Practice management. Okay. Practice management is where you're going to find it. And then that puts you to the practice portal and evidence-based map, evidence maps. And that is just a great starting point. I send my students, in fact, often in my aphasia class on one of their assignments, there's a case study project at the end, and they're required to include the evidence maps because I want them to know this exists. It shocks me. A lot of times I'll give talks at professional meetings and always ask people, raise your hand if you do use the ASHA practice portal. Only a couple raise their hand instead of everybody, but it's the best value for for the amount of money we pay every year. That's where you get your value from, the ASHA practice portal. But there's other places that you can find similar information. So one that I really like, it came out of the folks in Australia and they created, it started call, being called Psych Bite, and then they created Speech Bite. So it was sort of the neuropsychology information, cognitive communication information. But then they created Speech Bite, and Bite stands for something for intervention. I had it open earlier, so I could remember, but it's an acronym the B I T E. But speechbite.com is really helpful resource to look at. 
you can put in research designs that you're interested in, or just systematic reviews, and then it spits out summaries of some of these, these tools that have been published throughout the world, because these things go on all over the world. Another really important one is the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, and that is comes out of Great Britain. And the Cochrane Database, they have systematic reviews on every imaginable topic in medicine. So if you're interested in heart disease or knee disease or right anything, but we're, of course, interested in stroke and aphasia, there's systematic reviews that have been done through the Cochrane. You can find findings about pharmacologic treatments in aphasia and just general aphasia treatment. It's very rigorous systematic reviews. So Speech Bite from Australia, Cochrane from, from England, and ASHA from the United States. Those are awesome resources to get to some of the summarized systematic reviews. Well, thank you. Now, is the, the ASHA systematic reviews in the practice portal, are they more of a United States focus or an international focus? Well, the premise of a systematic review is going to pull every paper possible, but most of the time, one of the inclusion criteria is that the papers are written in English most of the time because they're done by scholars whose first language is English. So it's certainly biased toward the English literature. But what, what I see more and more is that in Asia, there's a tremendous amount of work coming out of the Asian countries. And so they're publishing some of their work in an Asian language or an Asian journal, but there are tools to translate these papers. So I've certainly somehow, I can't remember what language it was, but translated a systematic review about a topic into English. It's not perfect, but it was a way to capture what's happening in the world and not just, these aren't just about the United States. These are about all research that takes place on a given topic. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Okay. Renee, do you have any other questions about evidence-based practice? No, I just know that Australia has been around doing a lot of aphasia research ever since probably even before I was a student. And so the validity of what they've been doing and, and how they've compiled everything, I think is pretty strong. I used Cochrane database when I was a student as well. And so I'm fortunate that I knew what those things were and have been able to use them throughout my career because it definitely gives you a better way to purview the literature when you're a practicing clinician and you're not necessarily in an evidence gathering role as far as a researcher. It's a little bit more of a challenge to go through all these papers and try to figure out, okay, like like Stacy said, what is this research as far as validity goes? How is this being measured? how many people are looking at it and looking at the overall design of the study to make sure that that's also valid. So a lot of those things, if you didn't learn that in school, you may you may not know that. And so you see a paper and you kind of jump on it because you think, okay, this is new and novel, but we have to have that sort of back review from people who are doing the research and have more extensive training on how to analyze that. And so it's a segue for us as clinicians in the field to look at what the <laughs> the academic world is doing and connect the two via those resources. So I, I'm so grateful to have that 
experience as a student and then also to hear how that's grown throughout the years. Something you just said, Renee, though, really nicely takes us to talking about constraint-induced language therapy, which is the example that we want to talk about today. So back in 2000, a paper was published by, it was a German paper, but Pulver Mueller was the first paper, and it was published in the journal Stroke. And the journal Stroke is not read by speech pathologists, that's read by the doctors. But it was about this approach, constraint-induced language therapy, that was based on a constraint-induced movement therapy that had been developed in physical therapy, which was based on some basic animal research. And the premise is that if you don't lose it, or if you don't use it, you will lose it. So there's this balance in speech pathology where if you only do compensatory strategy training, there's potential for our patients to get better in their language abilities, but that's if they use their language. So anyhow, the 2000 paper came out in stroke. And before we knew it, it got a lot of press and clinics around the United States. I don't know other parts of the world. Clinics in the United States were offering constraint-induced language therapy immediately. And there are a lot of rich people who get aphasia and are are willing to pay as much as they, they need to pay to try to improve because it's just such a tragic situation. And so these CILT clinics were popping up around the United States Right around then is when ASHA was creating this endeavor to start doing some of their own systematic reviews. And in Division Two, we said, hey, CILT is a potential topic. We think we know there are these clinics popping up. We'd be willing to do a review of the literature of CILT and do that first systematic review to help clinicians know whether this was worthwhile. Should they be doing these this CILT work? So maybe it, me just the constraint-induced language therapy has a couple of principles that are at play. One of which, it, so it's usually done in the context of a, a small group or a dyad of people with aphasia, with the clinician kind of prompting and supporting where the people with aphasia engage in some kind of language activities. You could call them language games. One important premise is that the patient must use verbal responses. They're not supposed to use compensatory responses, use verbal responses. And then moreover, the intervention was provided very intensively. And the word intensive means a lot of different things. But for right now, what I mean is in one week, the patients were seen for 12 hours. So that's three hours a day, four days a week, 12 hours. And in fact, in the Pulver Mueller paper, it might even been five days a week for three hours. I think that's correct. Five days a week, three hours. So that's 15 hours a week for two weeks, 30 total hours. Well, how many of you have that possibility? But it was a forced language treatment done very intensively. All right. So that's the treatment. 
So there were, after the Pulver-Mueller study, there began to be a series of, of original research studies published. So by 2006, 2007, when we were doing this work, we found five original studies that had been done around the world. That literature has grown and grown and grown. And we did our systematic review that was published in 2008. In 2010, we added to our systematic review. And let me see, I wanted to, I have this interesting table that I wanted to refresh my memory. So by last year, there had been about six different systematic reviews that had been conducted. It turned out three of them were systematic reviews, descriptive summaries of the literature. And then the three most recent reviews were meta-analyses because now there's more data, more studies using more common metrics. So there've been six systematic reviews. Across those six systematic reviews, there are dozens of original papers that published constraint-induced language therapy evidence. There's no way that you could keep on top of that. Dozens and dozens of papers. But heck, it would be hard enough just to read six systematic reviews. But that's kind of where the literature has gone. And so we have a paper that's just coming out in AJSLP about systematic reviews of constraint-induced language therapy. The reviews themselves, have they've gotten better and better because there's literature to guide people doing systematic reviews. So the rigor of systematic reviews has certainly improved in the last five years in particular. And what we see in CILT in particular is that when compared to a treatment that is kind of a standard treatment, maybe 30 hours of a standard treatment twice a week for two hours a week for 15 weeks. Yeah, it it appears that the intensity piece of the puzzle is very important. I mean, getting more is better. And then the other piece of the puzzle is the forced language. Is that the important component? And so one of the recent systematic reviews, it's probably my favorite, and it's done from an Australian group led by Pierce, Pierce et al. And my friend, I think Miranda Rose is one of the co-authors on the Pierce et al. paper. And they compared constraint-induced types of therapies that are verbal-only therapies to a multimodality type of therapy for aphasia. So because there's plenty of aphasia treatments that encourage verbal production and some kind of, look at me with my hands are moving, communicative gestures or drawing or writing, whatever. So multimodal types of treatment. And the Pierce paper gives some pretty convincing evidence that it's the intensity part of the story. That's very important. So whether it's forced verbal production treatment or a multimodal treatment, if it's done in an intensive way, you get your best outcomes. Now, the literature primarily is about language test outcomes. 
So a Boston naming test or a Western aphasia battery is some kind of general aphasia battery. Oh, auditory comprehension. There's because there's quite a in this dyad or group format, the people with aphasia are not just speaking, they're also listening. So we do see comprehension improvements for people who participate in constraint induced language therapy. What we really want to know is does this make a difference in people's lives? And the descriptive reviews generally shows there are communication rating scales that people will provide or examine, some connected speech measures. And descriptively, it seems that the intensive treatment improves production, regardless of how whether it's done with forced verbal or a multimodal type of treatment. There needs to be more evidence to be able to do a meta-analysis, but there's just the outcome measures are all over the place. So no one has attempted a meta-analysis of some of those connected speech measures or rating scales. So that would be the best evidence someday to know on some of these patient-reported outcomes that these treatments really are changing people's lives in patient reported outcomes. That would be the best evidence. And that'll be the direction of the future. I hope that more studies will look at some of those kind of outcomes, not just these language scales, which aren't as meaningful. Well, and sort of to kind of let the participants know who are watching this and listening to this, you know, I'm thinking about me having worked in inpatient rehab where we got to see our patients for an hour a day, five days a week, and then versus outpatient where we're constrained a lot by insurance. And so it's difficult because a lot of our uh, really folks in need of having more intensive therapy for whatever reason, if it's an insurance issue, a transportation issue, just geographic availability. I think that would be interesting to see too, where are they getting this intensive treatment? Is, is it specifically a like a fascia connection recovery type center intensive. I know, was it University of Michigan has the... They do have an intensive program. Right, where they go for several weeks and spend, spend the time there. Yep, and Leah Cherney at the, oh, they changed the name of the, the lab. Yeah, the Ability Lab that used to be... The Ability Lab in Chicago is another. So in Montana, Kathy Off does some intensive groups. I mean, all over the United States, there are clinics that are popping up that that allow some opportunities for these intensives. But for the regular practicing clinician, you're right, Renee, we're constrained to twice a week. So we've got to solve that problem in other ways. Well, if you think about healthcare equity, it sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong, if insurance is not covering the intensive therapy, you either have to be going to a clinic. If, if you don't have the means, you have to be going to an academic clinic where it's paid for by the university or there's a minimal charge, or you have to be able to afford this intensive therapy. Yep. Do you have any idea like at a private clinic, how much two weeks of CILT program would be? I have no idea. I'm sorry. I don't know because I, to, for me, I try to. I'm going to try to solve it in another way. Given the constraints of insurance, we got to be doing homework, computer 
there's plenty of software programs, computer access. Now, it still brings up the whole health equity issue. Because not everyone has access. That's right. More and more people do have some of these resources in their homes, but certainly not everyone. And so we have to do whatever we can to get resources to folks. But heck, you know, I think about my dad a year ago had a minor stroke and God forbid it had been a major stroke. You know, he's in a little town in Wisconsin. He's lucky they do have a community hospital and he could have received some kind of therapy, but it's not the same as some kind of a major medical center. You know, it's not, not quite the same. So I have a question. How does the systematic review account for variability in the studies? So let's say one CILT program had two people and a therapist and one program had six. Are they in the review? Is that being accounted for? Usually not in a systematic review because that's very descriptive. But yes, in a well-done meta-analysis, what happens is that a study that had more participants gets a higher weight than a study with fewer participants. So in a meta-analysis, sometimes you'll see this graphic where in their tables of the, of the published paper, they'll list all the individual studies that were part of this overall analysis. And then they'll have these little diamonds that are either toward zero or toward one, you want them to be away from zero showing, okay, this treatment has an effect. But to the extent that the size of the diamonds and to the extent that diamonds do not overlap zero, that's what you want to see. But then usually there'll be a a concluding diamond. There'll be a final summary statistic. And that has encompassed exactly what you're talking about, Mary Beth, in terms of the weight of the evidence of some studies, a bigger study contributed more to the final statistic, to the final analysis. Yes. The number of participants in the study, but also the ratio of therapists to participants. No one has really looked at that. I can't think of any studies that have talked about the ratio. Yeah, I don't know. But in general, most of these CILT programs are how many participants would you say? You know, like four in a room, four in a group. Yeah, three or four. I've done it with two and I loved it with two. It was a great experience in a dyad, but I've seen a lot of times four, four around a table all working together. Well, sounds like that might be another study pairing two to four. Yeah. Well, there's all kinds of questions, but the effect, the difference in the effect is probably so small that you couldn't find the effect. (laughs) It would take a very large study to tease apart that kind of a question. If you think about the intensity, though, if you have twice the number of participants, you're not going to have your, your participation is going to be divided. Exactly. You have less opportunity to talk. Yes. Yeah. So that's a fair, that's a, a different element of intensity. That's very fair. But t- going back to in the context of the whole the whole interchange, there's comprehension while the other person's talking, you're working on comprehension. So True. you know, there's a lot happening in a room when these kind of sessions are taking place. 
Well, how exciting. I did not realize that Asha really started this, you know, because I, I took some years out of the field to raise my family. And I didn't realize it was only 2006 with the with the first push for evidence-based practice in a systematic review. That that seems amazing to me because correct me if I'm wrong with my math, that's 17 years ago, right? So that was the first that Asha in put money behind doing systematic reviews, you know, because certainly they valued evidence-based practice well before that. But earlier we mentioned ANCDS, Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences. And so for the adult neuro people, ANCDS was the first one engaging as an organization in systematic reviews and I can't remember the first one. The first one was a dysarthria review by Kathy Yorkston. And I forget the year on it, but it was way back in the 90s. And 90, it was by 2000, they were beginning to put, put out, publish a number of reviews. Because shame on me, that is another resource, ancds.org. You can access a list of the reviews that have been done through there. And probably many of the papers you've read in various journal articles Oh, yeah, those were done under the auspices of ANCDS. Well, thank you for for sharing that. We'll just add that to our learning objective. So, yeah, thank you. All right. Well, Renee, do you have any other questions regarding the CILT systematic review? I do, actually. So one of the things that I was interested in knowing was how the connected speech is measured. Are the, the studies looking more at like MLU? Or are they looking more at like a narrative analysis, combination of things? Any of those things are being done. But, you know, in aphasia, a lot of times they'll use metrics called correct information units or content units, or get at some of the linguistic analyses. So it, it's, it's just all over the place across papers. That's why you don't see good a meta-analysis of connected speech outcomes, because there's just so many possibilities. And indeed, that's what people are doing. I mean, if people, if everybody did a rating scale, like a common rating scale, okay, that's easier. And then we could begin to put those together. But it's really very cumbersome to try to do a meta-analysis of connected speech metrics, because they're all over the place. Good question, Renee. Yeah. I had another thought. Okay. Is there any any thought or inclusion also in any of the systematic reviews about communication partner training? Because under the life life participation approach for aphasia, that's something that I've tried to fit. Well, and also because I was a family member, part caregiver for my dad, that was something I felt like we really needed was communication partner training. And that was back in 97 when my dad had the stroke the first time. So, yeah, it just wondered if it was more literature driven now to include those types of things and their role in in the intensive approach. Yeah, actually with Nina Simmons-Mackie and Leora Cherney, Audrey Holland, we did a systematic review of communication partner training. That re- review was was sponsored through the Academy, let me see, of ACRM. So American Congress of Rehab Medicine, because they do, probably many of you are familiar with the COGCOM systematic reviews that they're very, they covered everything 
in this one paper, including a section on aphasia. But those were supported through ACRM. And Leora got ACRM's interest and we did the communication partner training. I think that paper was like 2013. And so there is quite a literature about communication partner training. It was a systematic review and descriptive summary of what was happening in that literature. And the interesting thing in that literature, you know, I'm getting old, I'm getting really old, so I forget, but the communication partner training literature shows that people with aphasia improve their use of communication strategies. Their language doesn't improve. So the language measures don't show positive outcomes, but their communication measures certainly do. And that's what you're working on. You're not working on improving talking. You're working on improving communicating. And that literature definitely shows a positive a positive benefit of communi- training communication partners because communication partners don't know how to talk to someone with aphasia initially or how to draw out the best in someone with aphasia. So see, so there's systematic reviews in every area. We just happen to pick CILT as an example to talk about evidence-based practice, but definitely that's another one to, to look at. And it, that was in the archives of physical medicine and rehabilitation quite a few years ago now already. You do have a question in the chat that says, could you provide a quick example of your forced language in the dyad? Oh, well, so the patients are prompted. A lot of times you'll see where the the dyad of people, they have cards and it's like a barrier situation. So one patient has some cards and another patient has some cards and it's sort of a go, go fish game where they are required to use some kind of a verbal template, something like, do you have the red car or something like that? Do you have the blue, blue bird? What I'm, you know, I'm just pulling those out of of nowhere, but so typically there's a template, they have to use a verbal request and then there's a response by the partner. No, I do not have a red car. So, so there's this interchange typically using some kind of a a template. The template could be on a card or the clinician is at the side guiding the patient, cueing the patient like we always cue the patient to the verbal production, but they're cued as best as they can. And then they go back to the beginning and try to provide the whole utterance. Once they've, they've struggled through producing the utterance, then they go back to the beginning and say the whole utterance once again to the best that they can. But this repeated work, I mean, my personal experience was with a clinician who was doing a research study in Richmond area and I was assisting her and I coded all of her video for her study. And from beginning to end, the patient, especially with a moderate Broca's aphasia, really improved production by the end. The person with more severe Broca's aphasia improved, 
but not nearly as much as the person with kind of the moderate. It could really push this person to be producing much more complete sentences because it's it's about producing complete grammatical sentences as much as possible in the constraints for, for each individual in the group. Because some people in the group, maybe their goal is just to produce a single word or a two-word phrase. And someone else in the group, their goal might be to produce a full question, grammatically correct question. But using some kinds of template cards or prompting cueing is what happens in a session. I hope that helps to explain a little bit. Yes. And do we have another question? Or? I answered that one. It was just, what are the three resources, Speech Byte, ASHA, and the Cochrane Database? Perfect. Thanks. Thanks, Renee. You're welcome. Yes, thank you. All right. Well, as a reminder to our participants, um, you can put your questions in the chat box and Stacy will be happy to answer them for us. Or if you have a, a question for Renee or me, we'll be happy to answer them as well. So, Stacy, you've had such an exciting career. What are your future projects or plans? Oh, that's well, unfortunately, well, 10 years ago, my human subjects research really was curtailed because I became a department chair for seven years. And then we had COVID. And I'm really excited. We're moving from a college of education to a college of health science this summer. And then I'm going to become department chair once again. So my human subjects research just is not getting relaunched. So the whole, what I've been doing, like the paper that I just referred to earlier, we're doing some work looking at systematic reviews across aphasia on a number of topics. So last week we had clinical aphasiology conference. It was up in Atlantic City and we did a poster and we'll be working on a paper, but it was about transcranial direct current stimulation, TDCS. Another one of those interventions that, and it sounds really sexy, is you know putting something on someone's head and providing some kind of a, a signal that, and then doing therapy, that sounds really, really awesome. And there are dozens of studies of TDCS all over the United States looking at its effects for aphasia. And there are 16 different systematic reviews that have been done about TDCS in aphasia. So we're preparing a paper about that literature. And after that, I'm not sure. Well, congratulations on becoming the chair again and moving the department to the new college. That is very exciting. Another thing that was exciting about that, I believe that Renee became the last fellow. Can you describe that to be named for the, the former college? Renee, can you tell us a little bit about that? Which part? The part where I was trying not to throw up? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was a very unexpected and huge honor. There's been, I think the number was something like 42,000 graduates that have come through the Darden College of Education and Professional Studies. And so well, there's six divisions and the communication, sciences, disorders, and special education is one of those divisions. And so I was selected by my former professors, which is very overwhelming and humbling and exciting all at the same time. 
And the other really cool thing was that all six divisions had a female that was selected. So we were a group of all women professionals from each division. And I'm not sure that's ever happened before. So I thought that was pretty amazing just to be a part of that. And now I'm the last one for our division. So. Yeah. And we don't know in health sciences if they do something like that, but every other year we would select an alumnus that was an out, had made outstanding contributions and it was a no brainer for, I mean, look at Renee's here right now doing this kind of work, but she also was, is a leader in the state of Virginia. And we wanted to recognize that. Well, congratulations again. So let's go back to what you just said though, about transcranial direct communication stimulation is, is, do I have that? Yeah, that's a whole different topic. <laughs> okay. Yes. I know it's a whole different topic, but since we have a couple minutes, I just wanted to ask, what is this? Is it magnetic stimulation? No. So it's just an electrical signal. So there is something called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And those are very large units and very expensive units. So they're pretty much only in a research enterprise doing TMS research in aphasia. And it seems like when you put a magnet around someone and then you engage them in therapy, that the premise is that you're trying to get the neurons to be more ready to fire, more ready to connect. And so TMS, the evidence is pretty good in aphasia that it improves outcomes beyond just their behavioral therapy alone. Well, but it's too expensive. Renee is never going to have one of those units where she works, but TDCS is just an electrical signal that there's two different stimulation components. One is anodal and one is cathodal. And there's any number of arrays where these are, but this is an electrical signal. Signal. It's there's just a band that has these little units in the band, and you can get them for several hundred dollars. So people are buying them for themselves. Rich people with aphasia, they go buy one, or clinicians are buying them. And the question is, putting this on and then engaging in behavioral speech therapy. Does it help compared to just behavioral speech therapy alone? The TDCS data are not quite as impressive. So the right studies are now being done because in our work, there were 72 individual research studies that have been taking place all over the world. And let me tell you, the Asian countries are doing this like crazy. So the outcome that you see the best data for is that in a picture naming paradigm, a person who has TDCS plus therapy has a better outcome than just therapy alone. And what we were talking about last week is, is that sufficient? Does that really matter for your patient, Renee, that you're going to see in rehab? Is this is that enough? And virtually none of the TDCS studies are asking about connected speech, rating scales, or communication participation metrics. None. 
they're all doing a general aphasia test, a word finding, but the proof of concept is done. It's time to ask, does it change communication? And there are people in the United States who are doing some studies to try to answer that question. And so until we get a little bit of that data, I'm not planning to put these on my patients, <laughs> but <laughs> but there are people who are. Yeah. Is it a difference that makes a difference? That's exactly right. Is it a difference that makes a difference? That's the perfect way to put it. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, just a reminder, we can ask a few more questions if you like, but we have a great question for Stacy that we talked about ahead of time. So you've had such an amazing career and have worked over 40 years in our profession. What is your advice to people who are just starting out in the field? I know we have some people who listen who are just, they, they haven't even started in the field. They're, they're just interested in the field. We have some students and grad students and, and new clinicians. So to all of those people, what is your advice? You have to be a lifelong learner. And so in the beginning, there's so much to know and there's so much to continue to learn and know. In the beginning, you have to give yourself grace. And I remember decades ago trying to read everything and feel like I'm never going to catch up. And then one day I realized, okay, I have a body of knowledge, but I'm kind of keeping an eye on what's new. But give yourself grace in the beginning, keep learning, and then always have an attitude of that I want to learn more. And that's why you go to annual meetings. That's why you go to the state meetings, because there's always more to learn. And I don't know, that's the main advice. Well, I think that's excellent advice. Give yourself grace and keep learning. Yeah. And I think I need to remind myself of those two things every day. Yeah. And let me tell you, if I had to go and see a child with an articulation or speech sound disorder, because, hey, I learned, but they don't call it articulation disorder much anymore. They say speech sound disorders. (laughs) I'd be terrified, right? I'd be terrified. (laughs) So give yourself grace, no matter how much experience there's, you all are experts in things that I'm not an expert in. Well, and continuing to learn, I think is fun. I know Renee, we've had a lot of fun on these podcasts and webinars together. I, I think there's a great learning community of continuing education right now. And I think the internet has really added to the fun of learning. Yeah, I agree. It's always nice to have a phone a friend card too and have a network that you can call back on your colleagues that are in different arenas and different settings and in academia are good resources because we can reach out to those folks and and maintain that network and, and build that professional relationship and emphasize that to students and and the new people in our profession as well, because I think that's a big part of what I've done throughout my career is is do that. Yes. All right. Well, we are nearing our time. Is there anything that either of you would like to add? No. Thank you, Dr. Raymer, Stacey, (laughs) for for agreeing to do this. My pleasure. You can do it, Renee. Call call our guest, Stacey. (laughs) Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I I know it was a big ask when I reached out and Mary Beth was on on board for the day. We kind of talked about it, but it was an honor to have you on tonight. Well, it was fun. It was my pleasure.
Well, it was fun. It was an honor to have both of you. I, I love having a, a co-host to stir things up. And Stacy, it was you gave us so much information. We really appreciate it. There was a, a question about the notes. There will be show notes for this. There's not a handout, but there are show notes that will come out um, after this is edited. So thank you very much to our participants. And thank you, Stacy. Thank you, Renee. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.